Hello, and welcome to the September edition of Cinetopia radio show and podcast. I'm Amanda. I run Cinetopia, an organization that aims to foster discussion around film and filmmaking. I'm here again with Jim Ross, um, a managing editor of Take One magazine. Jim, how are you doing? I'm very good, thank you. And also co-producer of the show, and I'm also here with Mark Nelson, freelance film critic and regular on our podcast. Mark, how are you? Not too bad, Amanda. Thank you very much. Good. Um, so today our plan is to uh, review three films. Um, the first will be I'm Thinking of Ending Things, which is the latest from Charlie Kaufman, who is a uh, written and directed this film and is out on Netflix right now. Um, the second film we'll be reviewing is Les Miserables, uh, not the Les Mises that you've seen in the past, but a 2019 French drama directed by Laj Lee, uh, premiered at Cannes in 2019, but it's currently out in some cinemas across the UK. And finally, uh, Miss Juneteenth, um, which is a 2020 American drama written and directed by Channing Godfrey Peoples, um, which has premiered at Sundance now on demand, I believe, in the U.S. and U.K. as well. Jim also sat down with Dave McLean, who directed the film Schemers, uh, a new Scottish film. It premiered at uh, Edinburgh International Film Festival in 2019, but it is out in some cinemas now. Um, so it's festival season here. Uh, there seems to be a lot of festivals happening online this year. Uh, uh, Jim, you're uh, Jim and Mark. You've been um, you've been kind of checking them all out um, online. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about the ones that you've been involved with? Um, so the one that I'm kind of deep into at the moment is uh, Toronto, actually, which I'm covering for the first time remotely. They seem to have opened up into a a video library, a little bit like what uh, London does. Um, because they're doing a sort of a hybrid thing. So I've seen, at the time of recording, I've seen three films so far. They've all been pretty good in their own ways. Uh, a little Greek film called Apples. Uh, Regina King's... Uh, I think she's directed TV features before, but I think this is her first um, um, theatrical. I just suppose we don't know if it'll be theatrical yet, but um, her first theatrical feature, uh, One Night in Miami, I've seen, which is rather good. But the highlights so far, the ones I've seen, is Chloe Zhao's new film, Nomadland. Um, so I'm hoping to take in a little bit more of that over the next few days uh, with the various films that are available on that. And then after that, I'll be quickly on to Take One Action, London. Uh, and then I think Mark's also looking at Open City Docks, which is also one which is, I think it's on the go right now, basically. And there's a lot of interesting stuff there. Yeah, there is. Um, it's arranged in blocks. So the first block ended, I think, um, yesterday evening, I think, possibly at midnight today, actually. So the second wave of titles is just about to become available for people. And I'll start digging on into those um, from tomorrow. But I've seen uh, three very good movies in just a very short space of time. Um, there's a documentary by um, a Chinese filmmaker called uh, Gu Zhu which is called The Choice. Um, it's an hour-long chamber documentary, um, all takes place within a single take, um, where this family um, debates what to do about an elderly, um, about an ill relative. Um, that's been one, that was kind of astonishing, just to see how, like, how much they could wring out of so little formal movement over an hour. Um, I thought it was incredible in that sense. Um, there's another film which will definitely be coming out a, a number of them probably won't come out just because of uh, its specialism as a documentary film festival a number of them won't you know get distribution unfortunately even when they deserve it and perhaps especially when they deserve it um and there's, there's a film that will definitely get uh, distribution and is definitely deserving of it called mayor by david Osset, which is about the 
um, the mayor of um, Ramallah in Palestine is a guy called uh, Musa Hadid, Hadid um, and the like numerous pressures that he has to um, contend with in the day-to-day -day running of Ramallah um, not least of which is um, like the looming incursion of Israel into the day-to-day -day activities of Ramallah um, on the lesser side he has no idea what city branding is, and there's a long scene where they kind of walk around this boardroom just talking about, like, what actually is city branding? I have no idea what this is. <laughs> so it, like, balances those tones very, very, um, very, very well, I think. And the last and my favourite of them, and I'm hopefully going to write about this at some point, is a film called uh, Sunless Shadows. Uh, it's directed by Merdad Oskoy, and I um, found it very, very affecting. It's about a women's prison in Iran, and it's... I mean, it's kind of uh, tonally, I think you could say tonally adjacent to a film that we reviewed earlier in the edition of the podcast called Sun Mother, which, uh, you know, was a, an enormously depressing movie, but an enormously worthwhile one. And it's a similar story with uh, Sun the Shadows, which if it gets distribution, I, I hope it does, will definitely be worth seeking out. That's great. Yeah, I mean, I totally agree with you that um, these opportunities like Open City Docs is such a great way to see these gorgeous films um you know i had the ch chance to go to Id the international documentary festival in amsterdam a couple mm -hmm. times and it's really you know not great that we can't get those films kind of in distribution you know to theaters that you know are nearby to a lot of people um that's one of the things that we're trying to do with cinetopia doc and also just notice that we haven't really been um, reviewing that many documentaries in the past couple months i think mm -hmm. it might be because I know, I think it might be because of Tiger King scaring um, <laughs> Jim off a bit, but... Um, Jim, any... Listen, if it, if, it, if, it, if it washes the taste of Tiger King out of my mouth, then fire away. I yeah, mean, well... I'll review documentaries for the rest of the year if it gets rid of that memory. <laughs> yeah, well, well, we'll do our best, and I mean, yeah, Mark should give us some recommendations from that. I, I've never been to Open City, but they also have some really great industry events um, that are online and free um, as well, So, um, or they did, and, uh, and so it's just worth checking out. Um, oh, the Open City Docs is a really good festival, because I, I haven't had a chance to take in much this year, but I reviewed several things at it um, last year and the year before, and there's all, there are... It's a really, I, I really like the the range of stuff that gets put on, um, both in terms of like the tone of the documentaries, but also where they come from. Uh, it, it's a very the the selection usually has a very international feel to it. I'm a, I'm a big fan of it as a festival, to be honest. Yeah, and speaking of documentaries, and uh, take one action is coming up as well. So, um, do you, have you guys been taking a look at their program that's about to come out? I have. I've, I've taken a little bit. There's a couple of things I want to like. Made in Bangladesh. I nearly saw another festival recently. I want to check that out. Um, Softy, I think, is another one which I've got my eye on. But I mean, again, it's another festival I'm a big fan of. Um, there's a lot of good stuff gets shown there. Um, so I'm I'm looking forward. To, I mean, a vir virtual version this year, I believe. I think. Um, so yeah, I'll definitely be checking out. It's one that kind of passed me by unfortunately um i had a very quick glance over the um over the program but i i didn't find anything that was like right definitely going to watch this but looking at it now i realize i've made a terrible error and <laughs> <laughs> it looks really good but just as as i think we'll um we'll be talking about maybe next in next month's um podcast with uh, the london film festival is whenever too many events are happening at once things which you know look very good always slip through the cracks 
um and I th- unfortunately this appears to be one of them because last year's um last year's festival was fantastic yeah yeah and we you know interviewed uh tamara who is the director of take one action last year um so you can take a look at our interview with her last time but um we'll be definitely adding a link in in our description so that you can check out uh, the films because they're always phenomenal um and i and just highly recommend the programming and the curation and it's um Edinburgh and Glasgow local. So, um, and speaking of another film festival that's coming up is the first ever Taiwan film festival in Edinburgh and friends of friends of Cinetopia and Cinetopia is actually going to be um, collaborating with them on one of the things we love to do most uh, talk about film. So um, we're just going to be leading a panel discussion with uh, experts on Thai- Taiwanese film. Um, and uh, that's on the 26th at 2 p.m. Uh, have you guys had a chance to look at what's coming up for that film festival? I think uh, in, in sort of what Mark said, a bit, it's, it, looks, it looks good, right? That's, that's the short version. But I think we need to get all these film festivals in a room and tell them to not be <laughs> overlapping so I can actually take in all of these programs. Yeah, um, yeah I've, had a, I've had a little look at it and it does, it does interest me. I think it looks very good. It's another, it's another festival, a little bit like Open City Docs, where I've looked and watched stuff in a previous edition because I think last year, and I can't remember because it's, it's not a particularly long running festival, I don't think. But last year, last edition, year there yeah. was, the, yeah, but last year there was um, the, the organizers. Yeah, yeah, and that that was a really that was a really good selection. Um, so whilst I haven't had a chance to really look at this one <clears> as much, I have full faith that it will be a it will be a very interesting set of films to be looking at. Yeah, and on the on the note about uh, Scene Taiwan actually, which was I think one of the first pieces I wrote for Take One, which the publication Jim manages, was the Puppet Master, the Hoza Shen film, and they're playing another Hoza Shen film that's been uh, restored called either uh, depending on there are a couple of English titles, either it's Cheerful Wind, which is the one they've opted for, much nicer, or Play While You Play, which I've never made much sense of as an English title, but um, I'm I haven't seen that one yet. I'm gonna be writing about that one in the coming week. And the only film I've seen on the program I'd seen beforehand, but I think it's worth flagging up because it's one of the like, um, if not the, it's occasionally called like the inception of the new Taiwanese cinema. It's not quite accurate because there's a an anthology movie or an omnibus movie the year before called In Our Time, which is kind of the start. Um, but the one that's often seen as like the the break breakthrough point is um, the film they're showing, which is called The Sandwich Man, which is uh, an omnibus movie of um uh, three films one of which is directed by Hoza Shen so he is like you know again uh, present at the festival in some way um but the the final segment of that was an enormously important kind of flashpoint in the creation of the new Taiwanese cinema um because it there was this major controversy in the Taiwanese press about it the slightly more conservative element thought that it was patronizing and um demeaning and belittling to um Taiwanese people and other slightly more, I would say, film literate people thought that it was actually an exquisite and sympathetic short towards the um, poor, um, poor Taiwanese people living essentially in like a, this slum area, interacting the, for the first time with um, the American presence in Taiwan um, in the eighties. And I think it's a, I think it's a very, very, very good film, and uh, certainly worth having a look at. 
Yeah, absolutely. And so the festival is happening online the 18th to the 27th of September. And I know for a fact that all those screenings are free. So it's a really great opportunity. Um, so other than that, we have some Cenotopia events happening as well. So uh, not and not festivals, but uh, our regular stuff. We have our regular networking night happening this evening online as well. So it's a, a chance for you to meet uh, local filmmakers and, and connect and network. Um, and uh, we you know, if you if you RSVP, uh, we send you a Zoom link, and it's really informal. And um, you know, at some point, we hope to be back and doing that, you know, in person. But at this stage, it's kind of been a really fun experiment, you know, to to get to to meet new people um, through this online networking uh, thing. And it's not it's not daunting. At first, I was a little worried about it being quite daunting, but it's um it's quite it's quite relaxed and informal. Um, so if you're not sick of the Zoom meetings, which I know a lot of us are, um, get, give it a whirl. And uh, the other film event we are going to do is our next Cinetopia doc. So on on the fact that this past August, we ran four films on part of a series called Cinetopia Doc Love Your Local uh, that were all about community. Um, we have, we were experimenting and learning about online screenings and discussions and stuff, and uh, that seemed to be quite successful that we uh, decided to continue it uh, once a month. And so the next uh, film we're going to be doing is the 20th of September. Um, it's all on a pay-as-you-can scheme, um, just kind of for us to, to, from one pound to, well, it's just suggested donation. Um, but uh, it, it, we're highlighting a local filmmaker this time, um, Susan Kemp. She's um, been a documentary filmmaker for a while, worked at the BBC. Um, and she made this really beautiful film. It's very personal, but it's also about the history of the Edinburgh Seven, which were the first women to study medicine in Britain but they were prevented from graduating. And so it's a very local story to Edinburgh, Edinburgh University, um, but it also really has a, a wider conversation about the fact that, um, you know, women are often ignored in, in, in things like statues and obviously, um, you know, commemorations and graduating and, and whatnot and the issues of equal pay and whatnot. So Susan really does an incredible job um, creating a, a, an amazing film that brings together a whole bunch of voices on this. Um, and I, I highly recommend it. And so um, she'll be joining us with a live Q&A, probably also with some of the other filmmakers or collaborators within the film. So please do check that out on our, our website as well. And finally, not uh, last but not least, uh, we are continuing to plan and uh, really uh, try to engage our crowdfunding campaign for Cinescapes, which is our series of hyper-local um, films that we want to put on walls across Scotland and with a focus on Scottish films and local films and places that inspired them or where they were filmed. Uh, so we had some big news this week um, that uh, in, in addition to the Creative Scotland match funding that we received thanks to the support that um, the first uh, a group of people gave us, we also have been um, approved for uh, funding from the Back Her Business initiative by NatWest. It was Royal Bank of Scotland, but now it's NatWest. Um, so that means um, if we can reach our target of £10,000, um, then we're going to receive an additional £5,000 of funding from them. So I just put a plug out there to check out cinescapes.co.uk. 
and help us do this. Our, these these uh, film community screenings are going to be free. Uh, we're also hoping to screen uh, the films as well online. And we have, we have now able to announce that the first film, I don't know if it'll be the first in the iteration, but the first film we know we're going to be um, screening is Ne Passeron. And we're going to be doing that in collaboration with Cinematic, which we've interviewed in the past. But Edinburgh and Glasgow, uh, you know, film lovers know they're a wonderful um, film society that focuses on Spanish and Ibero-American cinema. And um, they were the perfect uh, collaborators for us. Uh, we've also done some film battles with them in the past, but uh, they were the perfect collaborators to take this project forward. So I'm um, really excited about that. And uh, we'll be announcing more films as we can confirm them and locations. And actually, we, we know we'll be film we'll be screening something in Leith because that's, that's Cinetopia's home. Um, but we went out last uh, this weekend and uh, filmed a whole bunch of interviews to sort of create an archive project, which is really exciting. So, so, um, so we're really excited about the kind of community-based film that that we'd like to explore with this as well. So that's Cinescapes, and uh, yeah, if you can help, support, share, uh, we really appreciate it. So the first film that we're going to be reviewing is I'm Thinking of Ending Things, uh, which was the latest of Charlie Kaufman. Uh, he's a well-known writer, of course, and uh, he's been directing his films lately. Uh, this one's out on Netflix. And uh, Jim, why don't you give an overview, um, if you can, of the plot and what's going on? Yeah, I, I will as best I can. Um, so basically, the, the film follows a, a couple and primarily a young woman played by Jessie Buckley, who has been taken by Jessie Plemons, her boyfriend, to meet his parents. Um, now, the the where the title comes from, although we'll probably discuss this in a little bit more depth as we get through this review, comes from what she keeps reciting in her head in the initial stages of this car journey, I'm thinking of ending things, referring to basically she's thinking of breaking up uh, with the the boyfriend Jake, and basically as the film goes on, it clearly it, it becomes very, as you might expect, Kaufmanesque, right? In that it's quite clear that everything we're seeing is not literally what is is happening. We're not quite seeing what you see is not what you're getting here. And when they eventually make it to his parents' house, there's a lot of confusing things around uh, seeing people at different ages. Um, there's a janitor character who comes in and out of the story as kind of Jake reflects on certain things. And basically there's this whole kind of, this whole interwoven thing of her inner thoughts, what things in the house seem to represent to him, where this janitor character, who's also a janitor at Jake's old school, where he comes into this, and the way that characters are interacting, some of the things they're saying, they're obviously not, they're obviously taken from kind of some of Jake's experiences. They're, you know, poems that he's read or in one case, movie reviews that he's read and this sort of thing. So it's, it, it's very confusing, but it settles this into this very unsettling tone and makes it very clear quite early on that what we're seeing is not really a literal interpretation of what's happening. So whilst the hook is is this young woman who is thinking of ending things with her boyfriend, Jake, the film then starts to go down a rabbit hole where obviously there's a lot more a lot more to untangle here 
than that very simple premise that we opened with. Um, yeah, well, <laughs> the long pause there. Uh, would you like to tell us what you thought about it? Um, well, it's an obvious joke to make, but I indeed was thinking of ending things. <laughs> My God. My God. Now, the, 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 I, I, what I will open with is... The, the, so. My experience of Charlie Kaufman's work is perhaps more limited than it should be, right? Basically, I've ne- this is actually the first film of his that he's directed that I've actually seen. Um, mm. And before that, the only the only work that I've actually taken in before that is uh, Being John Malkovich, which he wrote, of course, and then The Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. And basically, I could have fallen either way on this film based on that evidence, because The Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, I really like it. I, it's, like, certainly at around about the time it came out, it was one of my favourite films I saw around that 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 time, and I enjoyed that film in a, a huge amount. Um, being John Malkovich, I saw on DVD, uh, and I hated it. Aww. I just... I didn't know. I, and listen, I haven't, I haven't revisited it since then, so it could be one of these films that, you know, with... Uh, you know, maturity and wisdom, maybe I turn around on. Who knows, right? But, like it or not, that's that's where I am with it. I, d- I really didn't like it when I first saw it. I'm afraid to say that I'm thinking of ending things is far closer to that I'm being John Malkovich end of the spectrum here. Um, there are probably things I admire about the film. Um, I think in terms of creating a mood and a tone, I think it does an extremely good job. Um, there are a lot of shot choices and editing choices now the shot choice i think maybe in the initial stretch of the film is what i'm thinking of and then once they get to jake's childhood home the editing i think it does a really good job of just setting this weird off kilter nothing is in the correct place tone um you know there's a there's a conversation around the dinner table between uh, the couple and jake's parents who are played by uh, tony collette and david thewlis who you know, you got to admire the man's determination to never put on an American accent for any role he ever does. Um, but the the editing around it, it just it cuts away at odd times. You know, when somebody goes up to go get something, they'll cut just as they go round the door rather than when they come back. And it will cut back and forth. It, it, it's this, it creates this complete lack of rhythm, which is exactly what that scene needs. That's kind of where my generosity with this ends, though. It's... It's so impenetrably dull. I'm sorry. Um, with the dialogue and the character interactions, that whilst there is there is stuff there, and I think there is some interesting things to ruminate upon, if you like, it's kind of hard to do it once you're fast asleep. If I'm being perfectly honest, um, I did not. I did not click with this at all. And there are plenty of things about it that I think are really well done. But I just find I just found it such hard work to get through certain stretches of the film that it's very hard to take that way the film is constructed and appreciate what it is trying to illuminate with that. Um, I didn't click with it at all. I have to say. Well, I mean, if you didn't like being John Malkovich then yes, then you definitely probably win like this film. Um, I happen to like, I love, so Spike Jones is probably one of my, you know, like favorite, or at least growing up was like one of my favorite filmmakers. I really 
like um i really did like that film um and i did i did like adaptation i did like eternal sunshine of the spotless mind and you know even synecdoche new york which i think was his first film that he had um directed so when I heard that, you know, Netflix was kind of allowing him to make, you know, another, you know, like, and I think one of the things I heard, it might have, might have been Mark Kermode about the fact that, you know, Netflix allows filmmakers to do whatever they want. Because then partly when I was watching this film, I was thinking a little bit like, how would you give that script to someone and, you know, get money, you know, for like, for this, for this tale of some sorts, um, for I me. agree. How would you get money for it? <laughs> well, but only if you're Charlie. <laughs> so the thing is, is only if you're Charlie Kaufman yeah, or only yeah. if you're Spike Jones or Martin Scorsese. And so I think they're kind of doing this thing now where it's like, you know, carte blanche, like go for it. And, uh, you know, and and in some ways that it's maybe hindering the fact that like we, we need to reel them in sometimes. Um, and uh, I don't know, for me. I, you know, I have mixed things. I like adaptation wasn't my most favorite film, and Charlie Kaufman isn't like you know. Like, I'm not obsessed with everything that he's done, um, but I I do have to say like there's a couple of things that I might actually say in this review that I'd hate saying, but like I hate I hate calling things pretentious because I think sometimes I've some things I've done has or Cinetopia's done has been called pretentious, and film criticism itself is sometimes that way, but. There's something so self-indulgent to me about some of the dialogue in this film. And there's like, it's almost like one, my friends who love The Simpsons, and I love The Simpsons, but it's like you're trying to find, like, you're, you're, it's like you're playing this kind of fanciful knowledge about, um, you know, Pauline Kael and all these sort of like connections and, you know, things that you would know or wouldn't know and stuff. And if you if you have no knowledge about that sort of stuff, there's no way that you would completely get what is going on. I think it's this dialogue scenes where the two main characters are just sitting there talking for so long and it just doesn't, it's just, it keeps going on and on and on. And so it's close to, um, I, 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 there's got to be another word because I don't want to be a hypocrite, but I mean, other than pretentious that I find that I find some of those moments to be, I found them quite infuriating. Um, and, you know, secondly, I think, you know, the other thing that annoys me sometimes is, you know, when people are like, well, it's okay, you know, if it's a David Lynch film, it's not supposed to make any sense. But I, you know, and, and maybe again, because I lost attention, but I didn't think that all of this made any sense like you know i do get the, i understand you said well at some point you understand it's not actually you know it's not at, like it's a it's a dream or whatever the whatever the storyline you know ends up being but i think it fell very short of of having some structure for you to kind of get around also um i kind of have a unique experience with kaufman in that i watched Anomalisa first of all before I'd seen anything that he wrote and that was enough to put me off for life because Anomalisa <laughs> is an, just an irremediably awful movie and I, I can't believe the hosannas that it got when it came out it, it just it's, it's garbage but <laughs> I, haven't, um, I haven't seen it yet so I'll uh, take that off my yeah. watch list <laughs> no, like keep it on we'll have a we'll have a um a stramash about it but um yeah. I, I i so i just stayed away from Kaufman ever since so before September began I'd only seen that I've been catching up um with the with the films of Spike Jones, which I don't like either, um, I I find the Spike Jones films just airless, um, and 
fight, 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 fight. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I caught with the films that he, the other, I've caught with Synecdoche in New York as well, which, you know, I find loathsome on a par with um, Annamalisa. And I realized that it was, for a number of people who I know who really like the film, it was a formative art house movie for them, right? They saw it in the cinema, and that was why it, it's um, it's so beloved in their minds. But Mark, I, Mark I, I've got to be honest. Go of on. all the people that I, I speak about cinema with, uh-huh. you are the one that I love the most when you dislike something. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, 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 move, I'll move swiftly on from any animal Lisa bashing, bashing them. We can do that in private. But um, So I, I really, really hate Synecdoche in New York. I think I find it's just... Um, it believes... I mean, it is a synecdoche itself, right? Like, the warehouse becomes the um, main character's life and his art, and it becomes Kaufman's because he's referring to himself, mm-hmm. because he has no nothing else to refer to but his own mind. And that leads directly into this, because this is a movie, as Amanda was just saying, not only is this a movie with internal references, but external references, and they kind of meld together, right? So it becomes almost like a deconstructive work. The The, the criticism of a deconstructionist critic would be that every conversation somebody's having is a quotation. It's already been, uh, you know, agreed upon. It's already um, been formulated in the culture. And by the time that uh, a certain Guy Debord gets mentioned in this film, yeah. you're like, oh, God, right, okay. Yeah. So you've, you've not only taken the the inherent interest of these two people, these um, this couple's conversation, you've not only taken that to the tipping point where it just subsumes itself exactly like um, the Urubos that gets mentioned in Adaptation, um, and I, I think that the, the point of this is that I think Kaufman wants to, like, it's kind of the hero myth he's kind of enacting for himself. It would, I think he would love for this to be referred to on a on a par with things by, like, Bunuel or Fellini or <laughs> Alain Renier. I heard someone, I've seen someone refer to this film as, like, as close as we're going to get to an American Alain Renier. And I, oh, after yeah. watching the film, I would like an apology. Um, the... <laughs> I find I find the the air. What what I want to say actually is that um, there's a critic called James Agee who wrote in the 40s and 50s, and even if he was watching the like absolute dregs of um, Hollywood that was out that month for him to review, he would always find something in it um, to transform through his writing into something pleasurable, something worthwhile. And um, I'm I realize like I'm being so ungenerous to Kaufman but it is truthful like i don't i don't admire the films whatsoever and if i'm thinking of anything worth um isolating from the film before we like get into specifics about what we don't like is no i i like the idea of the drive i like the image of the the long drive in the dark night with the snow rushing past the window i think that's a good idea and that a relationship might be on the fritz and that um, there are kind of these these ways in and out of a conversation which are then hyper-mediated. I like that as an image and I like that as a concept. I find it executed with just extremely boringly. Um, and about the time that the Pauline Kael conversation comes up, where, um, I, don't, I don't know how far we want to go into this, but like um, Jesse Buckley's character essentially like assumes the voice and the mannerisms of Pauline Kael and then reads mm-hmm. um, her review of John Cassavetti's uh, Women Under the Influence, and it becomes like a, this this point this point of difference between them and what cultural creatures they are. Mm-hmm. And I think in the end, it kind of becomes about it, um, a fact of like you are what you eat culturally. Um, you know, the book that turns up the mm-hmm. HD poem, which then gets kind of regurgitated, it's actually in the room, etc. 
it becomes a spot the reference game with itself, which is too easily solvable. And we we mentioned Lynch earlier, right? Lynch's movies, the ones that I really like, I don't I don't care about solving. You know, I care about experiencing yeah. because they are so alive to like the nuances of wait, how, why did how did that moment just change in that second? What what was the specific thing that did that? I'm really interested in teasing that out with the Lynch films. I like this has none of that inherent interest because Kaufman's not nearly the filmmaker. Yeah, well, that's, I mean, that's actually what I tried to mean is that, you know, I can watch a David Lynch film that doesn't necessarily have all the answers solved for me in terms of narrative and whatnot, but still feel there's something that is bringing me there and engaging me. And um, I I can't make that argument here where, you know, the, the fact that it doesn't make sense is all going to be revealed in the end. I'm going to make a, a slightly odd comparison with this film, um, just because reflecting on it, right, it, it's kind of what it reminded me the most of. And the reason the reason for it is, and this kind of plays into the, you know, I, I like you, Amanda, I don't like the word pretentiousness when it comes to film criticism or films or something, right? Because sometimes a bit of pretentiousness is okay in my book if it's actually in service of something. But... I felt like basically Netflix had given Charlie Kaufman a lot of money to have a crisis of creative confidence on screen, and, and it, it just it seemed it, it just seemed to be this reflecting upon choices and the, with the way it was constructed, it was almost kind of the way in which he approaches creative work and just you know having some sort of crisis of confidence around it. For that reason, the thing that actually reminded me most of it, of stuff that I've seen in the past two or three years, was actually the house that Jack built, Lars von Trier's film, right? And because that film was very controversial because of the, just the kind of like, just general nastiness of it, right? But the thing that actually annoyed me the most about that film was it basically felt like Lars von Trier wailing for like two hours about why he hadn't been welcome at Cannes because he made a comment about Nazis or something. It, it's just, it was just so transparently um, self-serving and so transparently self-involved that I kind of lost patience for it. And that's a little bit of what's going on with this one. Um, now, in that case, as I say, there are things I like about the film, but they are there are qualifications upon my dislike of it and it's just it didn't i don't really know what the film was trying to say i can see lots of things it hints at and i can see lots of things that it engages with but i don't there's no i realize it's a ridiculous thing to say this film has no coherency right because it's it's designed to be incoherent right but what i mean is there's no there's no the ideas behind it are not coherent. What it, what all this is in service of is not coherent. And for that reason, the fact that you have these very, very long, dry dialogue stretches makes it a chore to get through. I mean, it's really, that's that's what it comes down to. If, if, if something is incomprehensible in the manner of like a lot of David Lynch films, the stuff that Mark has said is the stuff that you can hang it upon, right? In terms of what you're trying to get out of the film. And, let's, and also, let's be quite clear here, I don't like every David Lynch film. David Lynch has his misfires just like many other filmmakers. But this, like it or not, for me, it is a misfire. Um, it is impossible. It is borderline impossible to engage with on a meaningful level. And that's not because it's an incomprehensible narrative. It's not because it's a very twisty, 
set of imagery, you know, with the the ages of Tony Collette and David Thewlis. It's not, it's not to do with any of that. It's that it's not really 100% certain what it wants to say outside of Charlie Kaufman's own very hard to disentangle concerns in his head. And I'm sure they're there and I'm sure they're very interesting, but that doesn't mean that you can make an interesting two and a quarter hour film out of it. I, I can say a couple things that are nice about the film because I feel now very bad because <laughs> if you think James Agee or, or couldn't even say anything nice about it, um, I think the performances of Jesse Buckley and uh, and Tony Collette uh, particularly were good. You know, I think there's an interesting components of this dance sequence that like you know no, in of itself no. it it it's it's just the dance sequence it's, no. <laughs> it's curious i enjoyed that moment while i didn't know why it was there or for what purpose it didn't it you know it was it like you know it was it was shot okay you know like there there are elements to that you gotta Man, give a this little bar is scraping the floor i'm i am scraping the floor <laughs> and i'm trying and maybe i'm just as little i didn't know i was around a whole bunch of spike jones haters but um you know and did you see her you don't like her either hold on hold on i never hold on i never said i didn't like spike jones her her i absolutely love that's a great film right there are plenty of, like, i like <laughs> i have no problem with spike jones it's just that one i mean i, just, I, I, I didn't a, take to i have a problem with spike jones i'm sorry amanda <laughs> okay all right well we can take that up later afterwards <laughs> um I, I i even as much as i don't admire the experience of this film at all I'm kind of I'm interested in points in it, and then I'm interested in how they go wrong because a bad film is yeah. clarifying, um, like and why you don't like a bad film is really clarifying if you want to understand the experience mm-hmm. of it. So, for instance, like where I was almost about to make a comp, uh, pay the film a compliment was in vo- vocal performances, mm-hmm. because there are moments where Jesse Buckley has these fantastic um, hesitate hes- hesitations, like I've just mm-hmm. done in saying the word hesitation, um, and <laughs> she. They're very, very pronounced and very self-conscious, but they're exactly what they need to be in that atmosphere, right? So they kind of heighten the atmosphere, which is then uh, cut away from her in in two ways. One, by Kaufman's direction, which can't sit still, which can't let any mystery like just naturally uh, emerge out from the scenario. It has to be piled on by an interruption here, an interruption here, like, and that's where he's kind of begging for the René um, comparison, which... I won't grant him. And um, the other the other part is I, I disagree about the per, the performances mostly. Although I think Buckley and Clemens do do have some good work. I mean, Clemens has got that like um, he's almost bursting, but he's like trying to like contain it within like this mm-hmm. like nice wholesome wholesome guy um, exterior, but it does not match the interior at all. Um, Colette and Felix, I have no idea. I have no idea what they're doing at all. I, <laughs> the effects are so outlandish. And um, I think Colette was almost kind of just doing a remix upon her um, dinner table outburst in Hereditary. I think like <laughs> must have been watching like that and just gone, oh, I would like this, but I would just like it a note cookier and longer, much, much longer. Uh, yeah, so. I, I kind of agree a little bit on the performances. Like, I, I got a lot out of Jesse Buckley. I, 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 I think Jesse Plemons is a very underrated um, even though I hate the word underrated, but underseen, underappreciated is maybe the way to put it. Actor, I've got I've had a lot of time for him in just about everything he's been in. Um, everybody 
all the, all the kind of like the headliners on this, I have a lot of time for. I like David Thewlis. I'll watch him read out the phone book, but it, it did feel like he was reading out the phone book on this occasion. Um, there are things I like in the film. There are things I like. It's just I did just find it such a chore to get through. I, I it, it really I, it's not really much more of a a deeper analysis than that. And I think that this is when I come back to the previous kind of what I've looked and I look at the difference between. Um, you know, the one I liked, Eternal Sunshine, and then the one I didn't like in being John Malkovich, which, you know, I think that's... I'm going to put it down to Kaufman. I'm going to be... I'm, I'm on the side of Spike Jones here, right? Spike Jones's other films I've generally... generally, you know, or stuff he's involved with, I, I like. But I'm beginning to think now, what made Eternal Sunshine the spotless mind for me was the fact that, that that Kaufman script was taken, and then it was taken on by Michel Gondry. And I, I have to be honest, like, as many oddities and misfires as Michel Gondry has had, I feel like somebody like him could really do something with this. I feel like this actually needed a director other than Charlie Kaufman. That's not to say that, he, that, that he's been incompetent here. He's not. There's a lot of good stuff going on, but I feel like it needed a, it needed some other creative input into this in order to make it resonate further than charlie kaufman's own head that that's kind of how i feel about it there is a kernel of a good idea and a good film screaming to get out here but it's buried under these layers and layers of stuff which i don't think really resonates beyond carly kaufman's charlie kaufman's own psyche basically um so yeah there is stuff that's good here but it's just it's buried under so much you know snow it, yeah, <laughs> it, it's a, you know i feel like the film's is lost in the blizzard that this film takes in it takes a, place in it is a really inspicated movie and it has this thing where not only is it inundated with as i mentioned external references literature film reviews whatever um but it also it wants to point out and is so desperate to gather up every single internal reference in the film yeah so um i've i've point that is mentioned earlier in the film involving a pig with its um, belly being eaten with maggots this image can't just stay on its own the sadness that that image inspires or you know the horror that it might um, suggest or adumbrate that is not allowed to stand on its own and coalesce with other pattern points of meaning in the film at all it has to be gathered up and at a certain point deployed because mm. Kaufman's just a really greedy meaning maker and it means that there's I, there's not a lot here that you can do like an, an, an analysis of this film and I'm sure that this is going to inspire like dissertations galore in the next <laughs> few years um, because it, it's it's so consciously putting all of these points of potential meaning in conversation with each other but it's a complete cacophony it's not a, like when you say put points of meaning in conversation with each other you have deliberate, well-thought-out, intelligent, reasoned placings between points within a film, and that's how you make a film's meaning. Here, it's just gather everything up, fire it at will, and eventually it'll come back. And when you consider um, exactly the point of the ending, which I don't know how far I want to go into this, I'll maybe keep from just barreling right into it, but when you realise that um, all of these patterns have been established simply in order to undo them, which is what I think the film's ending does and just cancels them out, cancels out the emotional, potential emotional effects by trying to reach catharsis. And that's a very particular and very special kind of failure. You try and, uh, um, you try and reach catharsis by destroying, by completely like nuking 
the um, emotional work done up to that point. That is very interesting to me in how it fails, if that makes sense. Um, I'm just trying to uh, see. I'm thinking... Have you, I, I just feel like Spike Jones made a Daft Punk um, music video once. Only because I would send it to you, Mark, and see if you just like that, that as well. That might redeem him for me. Because Michel Gondry did, uh, and it's quite good. At the, uh, not to be too self-indulgent on Cinetopia podcast, but I do say if anyone's not seen some Spike Jones or Charlie Kaufman or Michel Gondry films, <laughs> to watch them for your own thoughts. But I think you can see that we're, we, we generally do not like this one, um, this Charlie Kaufman film, and... Uh, and uh, but it's on Netflix, so you can you can give it a whirl and let us know what you think. So the next film we're going to review is Miss Juneteenth, and um, it was uh, premiered at Sundance, uh, now on demand. And uh, Mark could tell us a little bit about this film. Sure thing. So it's directed by Channing Godfrey Peoples, and it's about a woman called Turquoise Jones, who is a former winner of the Miss Juneteenth pageant in Fort Worth in Texas. So this is the, um, the celebration of the uh, emancipation of the slaves. And what the pageant does, it essentially um, tries to teach um, young women to assume kind of like traditional feminine manners and um, take part in this pageant show. But if they, and if they win this pageant, they will receive a scholarship to their university of choice essentially so it's a way for people um slightly hard up to um you know find a way to get into education further education for their children and that's kind of where um turquoise jones is um thinking about this for her daughter kai because she is constantly saying to herself that she wants the life that she wants kai to have the life that she never had because her mother was an alcoholic and she had to make hard choices in order to survive and she wants Kai to have this um, more easygoing, more pleasurable life and uh, college is a part of that for her. But it then falls into the trap of then, do you want your child to have, you know, an enjoyable life and the life that you never had or do you simply want to give them like a version of, replicated version of the exact one that you didn't have following your interests rather than theirs? And um, that's kind of what happens because Kai is uh, Kai wants to join the dancing troupe at her high school, and she wants to see her boyfriend. She's fourteen, nearly fifteen. She's at that age, um, and so they 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 come into conflict about this. Um, but because they're a very loving couple, and it's a great thing in the film in that they're a very loving mother daughter um, pair. And every time that they argue, and they they do argue, and they have. Um, the performances, I would say, um, Nicole Beheri plays Turquoise and Alexis Chikadi plays Kai. And they, the performances have this like lovely uh, to and fro between Kai's exasperation at her mother's like insistence. And um, Beheri has this fantastic, like wide-eyed, oh, come on now, uh, <laughs> look in her eyes every time that um, Kai transgresses. Um, also worth mentioning that um, Kai's father is kind of coming back into the picture um, as a romantic partner for Turquoise. He's called Ronnie. He's played by uh, Kendrick Sampson. Um, but then there's also the owner of a local funeral parlor who's called Bacon. And he um, is this very uh, suave, very handsome guy, uh, very confident. And he's been interested in Turquoise for 
a very long time and so he's he's kind of trying to inveigle his way and so when you realize the essential like triangulation of her desire which is going to occur here you realize there's a certain confrontation scene that is going to take place right it's just going to take place it's written into the narrative and if things in the film are familiar and a number of things in the film are familiar um they're often um presented with a just a great deal of good grace and humor which makes you forget how familiar they are so for instance there's a scene in which um turquoise has to kind of like um she kind of confronted by one of her prospective partners about the other and the scene itself plays quite programmatically i'd say but it's occasioned by um a scene involving the community gathering together to try and raise funds for someone within it who's ill and that scene demonstrates the gregariousness of the community which um godfrey peoples is so um is so sharp in capturing and demonstrating throughout the performances that every time that i think of a potential limitation to the film i'm then reeled back in and go well no that's actually very well motivated and very well written and well performed so um amanda um what do you think about the film yeah i agree i mean i think um i think when you talk about that like there there are some arguments but yet i feel like the word charming came to mind when I thought about this film and um, you know, it was, it was like, there was never really the conflict was, you know, the situation that this family is in very much also like a regional film and lots of aspects and these kinds of senses of, you could really feel, I mean, I, I, you know, I had the fortune to get to film some stuff in the, you know, like, like rural Texas at some points. And so you could really kind of, see that this 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 was being captured but also the the story was so personal and so um you know so touching and i really loved the film a lot and i think we 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 do talk about films that uh, you know this is particularly i think her first feature film and um i think it's a a a really fantastic first feature probably you know one one of the best i i've seen in a while and i i i just enjoyed it you know i i like i didn't i didn't think about it too much i i loved it and i loved the story and i felt very um very happy that we 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 picked it to watch so i also um i also enjoyed it a lot um i think the main the main thing for me and i think the main thing that will stick with me after watching the film is the relationship between kai and turquoise um you know this is not like because obviously like mark was saying obviously they clash in the narrative as you know basically the narrative dictates they must really but that doesn't mean that there's not a lot of affection there and there are frequently quite a lot of moments where that relationship is presented very nicely and gently um so and and that really comes with the performances as well. So I think that that's that's what will stick with me. Another thing that I actually quite liked about it, and it's a little bit more sparing in these bits, is, um, you know, I mean, obviously, the, like this this beauty pageant is central to the to the narrative, and what what it represents is kind of an opportunity to, um, make more of your situation, I suppose. But it doesn't mean that the film and the characters when they don't have a little bit of time to roll their eyes a little bit at some of the 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 pageant culture um and there's one scene in particular where they're being told kind of like what cutlery they should use and you know what's your dinner knife and what's your salad knife and all the rest of it and it's just it just shows up for the absolute 
nonsense that it is but it, and it, and it's fleeting and it's done with these kind of other characters who are not particularly sympathetic but i like the fact that it finds time to deal with quite a lot of different issues in what is quite a, a, a brief film you know there's there's the thing around living situation opportunities the beauty pageant circuit it, it deals with actually quite a lot of things and it does it in a very effective and subtle way um just in the sense that it will deal with it very briefly and then the film moves on to, to something else but that's not to give the impression it's slight or fleeting it's just it's just very well handled in terms of like jumping between different aspects that it wants to and i think that's that's down to per, the performances when it's focusing on the relationship but the the directing skill really is what it comes down to in the the script I think it does it. I think it does it very well. It deals with quite a lot of things. It's a very personal story, but that doesn't mean that it's not dealing with other things. And I think it does it really pretty slickly, actually. Yeah, and especially when you consider that it manages all this tenderness between um, the turquoise and Kai, and yet, what's the motivation between um, four uh, turquoises um, wanting her to take part in the pageant? But the fact that they're always nearly in debt, the fact that yeah. they're like kind of living paycheck to paycheck. Um, the fact that um, she has to do like temporary work at the funeral parlor while working at this um, barbecue joint um, where the owner falls ill um, and the fact that that, that's, that it makes room for her desire as a black woman not just to suffer economic consequences but to like have this time to just um, you know fall back in love with Ronnie is kind of lovely and there's a great scene where they're arguing and she withholds her gaze from him she will not look him in the eyes and that's when you realize that the the most one of the most charming things in the film is every scene that they share where they're having this quite sweet reconciliation is because they're looking each other right in the eyes and sharing this like very direct eye line this very direct desiring eye line as well and so when it's when it's withheld you're like oh you realize that that's that's the most that's the main pleasure and i would say like as much as um that could be a kind of um, not a stereotype, but a kind of cliche about the um, a kind of deadbeat dad who kind of turns up and um, you know goes away at certain points. That's that's there. That that like that archetype is there, but it's interrogated in a very specific way because when he's when he's in the room with Kai and with Turquoise, he's like he's irresistibly charming. He's just such a good presence to have in the room, and um, I would say so that that that's partially how that makes that scene where um turquoise won't look him in the eyes kind of really powerful yeah i mean i think he was like for my gathering too is that he was he was part of helping the family he was part he was he was certainly like it wasn't this like you said it wasn't a cliche thing i maybe particularly like kendrick Sampson as well because he's also in insecure which I've, i think i've mentioned is one of my favorite tv shows right now on on tv so um but i i agree i agree with that and also yeah, I, I think it's a it's a it's a lovely film, and I think maybe it's just like the close ups and the shots and the, were so well chosen, and the acting just really like accented everything as well. So it really really came together um, quite well. Yeah, it, it's one of these films where it's not particularly showy, I don't think, um, but in a way that's why it's actually so well done. It it it, it deals with quite a lot of substance without being very showy but there's a lot of skill that is needed to actually make that happen and make it an engaging story and get what you need to out of the actors 
probably actually the polar opposite really of another film that we've spoken about on the show where i think there's a lot of showiness for not a lot of substance this is almost the polar opposite and i think you can tell which one i'm a lot more sympathetic to in terms of style and he had as we've discussed many times to you know try this out this is a first feature here so yeah on that note, um, this Juneteenth is available. We'll send a link to where it's available to watch online, and uh, we definitely all recommend that film to watch. So uh, the next film we're going to review is Les Miserables, but 2019 French drama directed by Lodge Lee. Um, premiered at Cannes in 2019, but it's currently out in cinemas across the UK. Uh Jim, can you describe how this is not the Russell Crowe version of Les Miserables, please? Uh, well, I can describe this not the Russell Crowe version of Les Miserables because I would rather <laughs> jump off a tall building than watch that no. again. Or, Great film. Um, no, I'm not having any of this. Absolutely not. No, <laughs> you, you, and I, you and I have agreed on being John Malkovich. We're not going to agree on this. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Anyway, let's, let's, let's litigate Tom Hooper's filmography at a different time. Mm. Um, so this particular one is set, um, in a banlieue of Paris, uh, Montfermé, which I believe is, a, is also the setting of, um, Victor Hugo's novel, hence the overlap in title and to a certain extent themes, as we'll probably get to in a minute. And basically the film opens with us following, uh, Stéphane, who is basically been newly assigned to the police in the area, and they are basically patrolling the area and interacting with the community is maybe how you would generously put it. He has two colleagues. Uh, one is a black man who lives locally. The other one is a white man who revels in his identity as, uh, I think, the Pink Pig or something. I can't remember exactly what it is. But they basically impose themselves in illegal ways, basically. You know, stop and search sign. There's a very sort of, like, icky, I suppose, is the way you put it, scene where he tries to search some young woman at a bus stop. And basically, the opening of the film is kind of establishing Stefan's, you know, disease with this particular um, approach to policing in the neighbourhood. Alongside that, we also see uh, some young kids in the neighbourhood and their leaders, um, in particular a criminal gang, and then there's also um, the local sort of the Muslim Brotherhood who basically impose themselves on the community in a different way and it's all that this kind of the opening of the film establishes kind of the uneasy equilibrium between all these groups in the community then there's an act of police brutality i'm not going to go into details about precisely what it is and basically that sets off what this powder keg of a situation is that equilibrium is completely destabilized and it very much snowballs from there um it's quite... I hate it when people say films are timely, but it is quite interesting that this film comes out when it does, um, purely because of the the police brutality that sets it off, um, the intersecting racial identities of these various actors uh, within this particular scenario. And I have to say, I think I'm not going to be... This is not going to be a unanimous opinion. I was very impressed with it, Um Again, with some caveats, as I always have, but I really do think that it balances the depiction of that extremely well in terms of 
what it condemns and what it perhaps is a little bit more um, sceptical of. I got a lot out of it, um, and I think there is a... I keep talking about the showiness of the directors of the films here. I think there is a certain amount of showiness here, but it works to great effect here, as opposed to the the Kaufman film that we've spoken about. So I got a lot out of it. I'm interested to see what other folk think of it, because I I think I, I predict a lot of discussion around this film because of the way it handles certain things and the, the storyline. Well, I'm interested in what Mark thinks first. Sure. So, I'll say that um, I was really enjoying the first. I would say the the opening just before the title card comes up, which is this kind of montage of um, the kids who are going to be important later in the film, joining in the celebrations to do with the World Cup in twenty eighteen, and so just uh, kind of crowding the Champs Elysees and celebrating, and every once in a while kind of being cut to black so that you would introduce more um, more of the cast and crew. And that there's also like something with a score too, the kind of rising, it felt like a shepherd tone almost. Um, and you get a sense of like, okay, tensions are going to rise very quickly. I thought that was just neat and economical and decent filmmaking up to that point. And then you get into the car ride where they introduce where they are. They kind of map out the, map out the complexities and the conflicts within the particular band that they're they're policing and they do the um Lajlai does this with this very highly constructed realism this highly constructed style of realism which is constant handheld constant traveling shots constant bump zooms whenever they spot someone who's of interest um and i'm afraid like the the even from that like the energy from that felt like such a contrivance from essentially the go when they're in that car because it's like well these streets are you know um like full of criminals and it, it takes on way too much of an air of their pers their perspectives i think because it's also worth mentioning that chris the sort of um provocative um police officer the one who like revels in um pissing everybody off He's also the screenwriter, and I think he's like given his uh, Alexis Manenti, I think his name is. He yep. has given his part so much more juice in the film as a whole than it deserves because it's a completely one note performance to me. It's just like whoever he can get in front of and piss off, that's it, and that's his performance. And like, well, that that isn't actually enough for the whole of the like societal issues you want to bring up. That's a very like. That there's one guy in the police force who's a complete shit and who's ruining this for everybody else strikes me as like it is <laughs> to bring up a Kaufman title reference. It's a synecdoche which does too much work, right? Oh, dude. So when we like <laughs> when we talk about um, the main character too, who's I think called Ruiz. That's his name, Stefan Ruiz. I think his last yeah. name is. Um, so when we get to a day following these officers around doing just despicable shit to everybody insight even before we get to the instance of police brutality in the particular way that this is captured and um, which causes them a, a narrative problem even before we get to that point you then have to question the idea which the film is not going to question it's just going to keep on barreling on with of the idea of the good cop right if you can get through a day of, of watching this stuff um you know play out as it plays out the idea of the good cop is meaningless then if you turn up the next morning and just pretend that those things didn't happen and the good, the idea of the good cop is essential to the final shot of this movie, which is kind of like the crux point for me. And I don't buy it one bit. 
What do you not buy about that? I mean, because it, it kind of bothered me the last, and I guess we can't spoiler alert the 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 end. But mm-hmm. I mean, it's just uh, the, the 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 part of the film that bothered me the most was, I suppose, was the end. Um, you know, because it leaves you on a cliffhanger of sorts, and and you know, and and and. But what what do you not buy? Is what well, I don't I don't buy the fact that if we're to believe that he is the proverbial good cop, he would not be there. He would have quit. He would have mm-hmm. he would have brought them to their superiors and said, well, not actually not so much Guada, although the like central incident involves Guada um, more than it does Chris, um, but. If he really was a like a good person, which you are, you're like you know you're essentially forced to think because of the way in which he, um, he conducts himself throughout this, like taking the side of the people who um, Chris is immediately like um, deigns to antagonize. If you believe that he's a good person, he's not there in that final day, in that final sequence. He can't be, and I, I don't buy the narrative logic of that whatsoever. You see, I, I I take your point on this, but I I'm personally of the opinion that that is that's entirely that's entirely at home with the other characters in the film to me, in the sense that every single character in this film, from the kids through to uh, Ruiz through to Chris, all the rest of them, the the various things that we learn about them, the way they act, is entirely constructed so that there are there is. There is no clear good or bad. Yeah. There is no clear, there is no clear, um, black and white situation that we can point to. All you can look at is what people's actions are. And in the case of, in the case of Stefan Ruiz, however we're, we're going to refer to him, I think basically the the mere fact that he has been uncomfortable with what is happening, yet he has still gone along with it, and he finds himself in that situation at the end, is itself an indictment of that. And then when you look at the other characters, there's an element of they're acting despicably, but it's not—it's never quite as simple as you think it is. And basically, now admittedly, I'm not necessarily saying this is then a good particular, a good thing for the film to land upon. It's yeah. basically just kind of throwing its hands up and then say, well, well, you know, we're all screwed. This is all horrendous. But I'm not... I'm not sure that it's leaning... To me, it's not leaning on that character as kind of the, you know, the oasis of goodness within a cesspit of, you know, moral decay. I don't think that's what what it's looking at. That's not to say that I would expect anybody to be necessarily 100% happy with how that story plays out and the and the standpoint that it takes because i don't think i i actually think my my criticism of the film such that i have it and it is a film that i liked a great deal is i think it it is a little too it is a little bit too lenient on the the authority side of the the characters you know so the the, the manner in which the policing goes about it it doesn't do a lot to condemn that, and I think it should be doing more, given the way that it reflects upon a lot of the the non police characters in the film. Um, I'm not quite sure I agree that that's what you're meant to take from that character, though. Is where I'm going with this. I I mean I guess my my initial response to this, other than you know having seen um you know having been a quite a fan of French films, particularly thinking of like the 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 scene of this is something that I think of a lot with like Godard's two or three things I think about her and how the discussion of 
this space and the the, the issues with the banlieue and you know and and how that's now you know years and years later a different a different scenario and a different thing is it reminds me it reminded me a lot of the wire in the sense that there's these children who are main characters and you know like you spend a lot of time kind of exploring their their and as much as you explore the difficulties that are the cops and you explore the difficulties of you know the different sort of components of what makes a community like you know the complications of that so I guess I didn't I didn't necessarily connect with the cops at all of course or felt even that character was the main character i think i was drawn to all the different characters and and also you know in a certain essence was quite angry at that main character that you're talking about particularly when there was a point when he was just pausing to do something and it really like i was found myself yelling at the screen like go go you know um but i also found the film to be a lot more um, intense than I even expected because I mean I've seen capers and cop stuff like this all the time but like there's just um, that I, I found like uh, even the drone footage to be sort of interesting because it's part of the story and it worked so well in sort of capturing the mood of of that space and um, I, I I don't know I I thought it was a very very interesting film and I think my complaint is kind of dual pronged as well because there's there's not only the the way that the, I think the film definitely does identify Ruiz as like the one like the proverbial good cop as I've said I won't like wing too hard on that but it's also that the dynamics within the police department and within that trio are so simple compared to the more complicated more fleshed out dynamics of um, not only the um, the circus characters who get involved the guys from the circus who are looking for their adorable lion cub which has gone missing um the um particularly black the like the character called the mayor who um sort of tries to adjudicate on matters within the black community in the banlu and uh, members of the muslim brotherhood who have their own kind of spiritual moral authority in that in that setting and it's the conflicts between those groups and the way the interactions between those groups that i think are so much more interesting than mm -hmm. the um i just think resolutely artificial conflict which is generated towards the end which is where my complaint about like the fault like i would call it like fall realism the kind of like uh you know ultra stylized realism which results in this um this kind of riot in a tenement building um where not only is that film style really grating on me because i'm not really I'm, i think it's too much it's too affected then it all becomes about that um, that cop and a boy who he's had an interaction with. And I find that, that the way in which this builds to this crux point, which is meant to be so important, is just denied by the interactions between the police officers, which just don't have the level of interest, the level of tact, the level of intelligence that the previous conversations do. And also kind of ignore the most interesting figure in the, of the trio, which is who is Guada. And there's a great scene where he's um, at home with his mother and has a very particular reaction to the day's events. And you think, right, that's the, there's so much in that interaction. And yet the the film is more interested in the pyrotechnics of Mananetti's performance. And I'm like, no, I'm not interested in the pyrotechnics of that. I think those are kind of empty. I would far rather we hear Guada speak. I... 
one of the, I, I think obviously this stuff bothers me less. I, I, I am going to agree with you on that, though. I do think in terms of character or secondary characters that we focused on, I would have liked to have seen more from Guada, who is the who is the black member of the three-person unit. And as you say, the interactions with his family and the way that that intersects, that to me is very interesting. And it kind of flags up maybe something in the intro which the film... I'd maybe doesn't fully deliver on now as i say it didn't really bother end up bothering me but the introduction to the film that you mentioned before where you've got the you know french people celebrating on the streets um france's 2018 world cup win it's extremely well done for a few reasons right including the score that you've already mentioned but there was one part of it that really struck me especially given what then goes on to you know play out in the film is more just in this scene of kind of like you know celebration of a French achievement with French flags flying everywhere and, you know, you're sent eventually kind of homes in on, you know, the, the Champs-Élysées and the Arc de Triomphe and these kind of like iconic French images. He, found, he finds time just to insert this very quick shot of a guy draped in an Algerian flag and it kind of, it just sums up really quite beautifully that just these intersecting racial and community identities that these, all these characters basically have. And the way that the film is then going to look at how that plays out. Now, what I would say is there's a different route this film could have taken where he explores those identities and how they interact, both within individuals and within the the community between individuals, which would be a much quieter film, which I think may well be more interesting. That's a different direction it could have gone in. It would make it a different film, but that kind of... The highlighting of that complexity, that is maybe something that, that the film doesn't really deliver on, which is something which, to me, that intro maybe started to hint towards. Well, um, yeah. I got, I, I got a lot of where it did go, but I think that, you know, it's maybe a difference in what you wanted out of the film as it then starts to play out. I think, I, I mean, to me, I, I, I agree that the beginning was, was quite powerful. I think also in part, and perhaps nostalgic for being in France uh, during the World Cup when they won in 2018, but also this idea that there's there's so much to that. that This idea of what we were talking about in the last film, a regional film, this is a film about a very, very particular area um, you know, and I guess uh, Victor Hugo had written it in and around that area, that that the, that particular banyo, like that town that is that banyo is like, it's, it's tied, the image to the Arc de Triomphe is very much tied to like Les Mis and the thoughts that you have about like fraternity and, and equality and stuff like that. But then everything that this film represents and shows is, is what's happened and what's transpired and what, you know... Uh, what 2005 represents you know and as, as much as today represents which is 15 years later right so um i i thought it 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 was subtle in the sense that it's telling a very particular story but with that with that at the beginning was such a strong you know conversation about the status of um you know the the french outs you know the the, the french capital in so many ways I think so much of the film's design is so much about that final confrontation in the stairwell. And it wasn't really until that shot when I realised all the problems with the film. It wasn't that I was like 
ticking up charges as I was watching. It was that mm. it got to that shot and I went, oh no, 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 this this all falls apart then if that's the emphasis that you take because the narrative equations that have been set up just disintegrate for me. If that's the particular moral um, point that we want to end on and um, unfortunately I think it does crumble under the, under the weight of that design. Well, um, so a mixed review we have here, um, which, uh, yep, yeah, of Les Miserables, um, and uh, we'll be offline talking about uh, why Mark likes the uh, Russell Crowe version. <laughs> I only like him in it. I hate the film, but I love him in it. Okay. That's even, that's uh, even worse. I realize that's even worse for people who really don't like that movie. It's an awful yeah. movie, but I'm, I'm so glad saying, it my, my mom and I walked out of that film. Really? Walked out. And, um, but yeah. Anyway, uh, so that Les Mis is available um, on, well, right now in cinemas, but um, hopefully online as well. So uh, Les Mis are up. Uh, and uh, check it out. So I'm here with uh, Dave McLean, director of the film Schemers, which uh, was at the Edinburgh Film Festival last year and has got quite a lot of plaudits, including from myself when I saw the film. Uh, Dave, I understand you're in Bangkok. Indeed I am. And how is it there? like a, a blue-arsed fly at the moment. Um, it's very hot, sweated profusely, although I've got the aircon on. It's good, though. It's very good, actually, compared to... The UK on the COVID thing, so that's such good news. That's good. So, so I think uh, to start off with, um, so Schemers is set in Dundee, uh, my hometown as well as yours, and it basically follows your early career in the music industry. So, I suppose my first question would be, what was the driver to make uh, a film about this? It's um, it's weird. It's um, people say, oh, Vanity Project and all that sort of nonsense. Like, it's it's not really. It's like it's like I've, I've had such a good life and uh, traveling the world and got, like, you go to loads of parties and meetings and record companies and meet bands and this, that, and the next thing. And and you inevitably, you end up telling stories, you know? Like you're at dinner with 20 people and you sort of tell a story and people laugh. And my business partner says, you know what, you should write a book. You should write a book. And I said, well, it's too hard to write a book because, you know, let's do a film instead because that's easy. Because a film, you've got... And you could put music on it, and you get good actors, and it'll be a doddle. So that's how it started. I just did it like that. Uh, it was just basically her saying you should write the stories down because they're, they're funny, and uh, it just stemmed from that really. So, so to be fair to say, the part of the reason, part of the thing that actually drew you to film was the fact that you could use, you, you could kind of bring the love of music through a little bit more easily in that medium, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, definitely. There's, I, I wish I could remember this set. Uh, this uh, line from a song from The Whipping Boy. It's called uh, When We Were Young. And it's like he's making movies in his head. And it's something like that. And I always used to do that. I just wish I could remember the rest of the line because it's brilliant. I've been playing it all week. You know, it's like I was. I always used to make movies in my head. You know, when I used to walk home from losing all the money at the casino back to Whitfield and uh, four miles, I'd be making a movie in my head. <laughs> you know winning Oscars in his dreams and all that with his schemes, all that sort of nonsense. One thing, the one thing I was wondering is, um, so it had, I mean, it sounds ridiculous to say it's got a very Scottish feel to it, right? Because of, of course it does. But I was wondering, did, did, did you have any sort of influence from, in terms of how you imagined the film in your head, other Scottish films? Because I got quite a bit of um, overlap in terms of kind of 
tone and feel with the likes of Bill Forsyth's that sinking feeling. Um, I think so. Some people have made comparisons to Train Spot, and I think I'd think the Bill Forsyth one is probably more what I would get out of it. But I was just wondering, was there anything that you had in mind, or you think maybe influenced your approach to the the characters and things like that? A hundred percent, Gregory's girl. Right, Gregory's girl was great. I just liked the soft sort of humour of it, right? You know, and uh, that sinking feeling. I've I've probably seen that, but it doesn't really spring to mind. But I, but I obviously know the title. But also, there's another film, which is nothing like Schemers, but I, I like the feel of it. it. was Local Hero, whoever did that. Um, just it's that funny, it's funny, because these are, these are all Bill Forsyth films, so yeah. Oh, yeah, are they? Are oh, you joking? Yeah, right, yeah, yeah. yeah, so that's think of it. So yeah, Gregory's Girl, Bill Forsyth, and then also yeah. uh, Local Hero. Yeah. yeah, it just had a good feel to it, like kind of, you know, a bit of gentle sort of humour, like, you know, uh, a, bit, a bit innocent. It's not crazy, you know, it's not mad. Uh, yeah, that's so. That's what I wanted it to sound like, look like, feel like, you know. So, yeah, yeah no. What I, I would say, I would say that sinking film then is that it, it is just funny that you say that because then that earlier film is definitely worth <laughs> um like refreshing memory on it because yeah, that's I got that a lot of it. So no, it's good. It's good to we've come right the <laughs> the scenic route to that. But yeah, yeah, no, that's good to hear. That's good to hear. I'm going to watch that today. I'm going to get on Netflix or whatever <laughs> it's on, and that that is my after dinner movie tonight well, hopefully, hopefully you find the version which is the original audio because it was infamously dubbed over with um very oh, posh accents removing no no it, it was scottish but it was very it was very posh scottish accents oh yeah, yeah. Removed like, the glaswegian from it basically yeah prime, prime of miss jean brody like my girl yeah exactly like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no no exactly um okay on, on that note i also so connor berry um the lead the lead actor he, he's basically playing you um, how involved mm-hmm. were you in the casting? Of the, how did he come to be attached to the project? Was he somebody that was brought to you? or? Yeah, there was um, auditions in London and Dundee, and he went to the London audition and was, was picked out. And uh, then I met him in London and got on great with him. And so it was as simple as that, really, you know. And uh, it was, I mean, he looks good, which is a, a big boost for me because... Um, <laughs> I don't now. <laughs> so it's quite, it's quite good to have somebody good looking and charismatic playing you. It's a bit of poetic license, journalistic license, but you know, why not? You know what I mean? So anyway, that's how that came about. <laughs> um, one thing I was wondering, because obviously the, the one thing I was wondering was um, obviously the, the, you're very experienced in the music industry, and this is, you know, it's. Um, it's now the film industry, film, you know, the film festival circuit, distribution, marketing, all that thing. How do you feel it compares to the the music industry in terms of outlook and how it feels in the modern day? Is there similarities, or do you find it very different? Yeah, there's lots of similarities, but um, the thing about movies is you can always go take two, take ten, take twenty two. But if you're in, if it's a band that's playing a, a big arena and it's no going well, you, you kind of just say to everybody, stop, hold on, <laughs> let's start again on that song. There, like you know, so you, you've you've got the the comfort of uh, sort of doing it time and time again if you want. Um, and actors are a bit like bands, you know, they're you know kind of performers, you know. Um, and the marketing and that it's much the same, really. I suppose you just need to sell tickets, people go and see it. Uh, you need to get exposure. So it's like, you know, try to get on the radio with a band, you're trying to get on uh, reviews and that, like when you've got a movie. You know, it's, it's all it's all the same sort of thing, really. You know, you just try to get your 
get the presence out there, you know. And you're kind of working it on a limited budget because you're a smaller smaller outfit, so you've got to get creative, you know. How um how have you found being on the film festival circuit? Because it's it's done very it's done very well. It won the it won the audience award at Edinburgh. Um, it was nominated at Raindance for best feature. It's won a couple of other things at, at other film festivals. How have you how have you found that experience and taking the film around the country and around the world? Really, well, what, it's a bit annoying really because um, I would have gone to Mexico because we won in Mexico. And yeah. I would I've been to Mexico loads of times. It's great there, right? And I would have gone to Russia because I've been to Russia so many times. I got great in Russia. I couldn't have gone to Russia. It's all that COVID thing. And I would have been in Florida tomorrow at the sunscreen. We won three awards. Well, not one, but we're up for three awards in Florida at sunscreen. Sunscreen, I think it is. So I, I don't know what it's like to go about with a festival because we've been stuck here. <laughs> you know, and that, that's actually the bummer. I mean, we did a few things last year, like rain dance, which was great. And Edinburgh was like awesome because... When, when we when we got on Edinburgh Film Festival, I actually thought it was an April Fool. You know? I, I thought somebody was just taking the mick. And the more I think about it, if we hadn't have got on Edinburgh Festival, what would have happened? I mean, we got an Edinburgh Festival, which was great. Then we got nominated for whatever the, the best of British, which was great. Then it had the uh, Edinburgh Evening News had the top five film, uh, top five movies, and we were number four. And, tra- and Toy Story was number five. <laughs> you know, daft, th- things like that are just mad, like, you know. So it was like a completely mental experience. It was great, you know. And I wish I could have gone to Mexico, gone to Russia, gone to Florida, gone to wherever, like, you know, because it would have been similar to that, you know. Same sort of vibe and meeting people and, you know, just having a bit of a laugh, really, you know. And that was great, you know. Another thing I wanted to ask you about with the the... the the setting of the film is and something that i appreciated about it a great deal is that fondness now obviously this is a, a, a dundee before i was i was born right because i was born in the mid 80s so it's a bit it's a bit early for me but i did enjoy that fondness for dundee being put on screen because i think it's uh it, of scotland cities i feel like it's maybe one of the neglected ones in terms of its portrayal and how people think about it is is that something that was at the forefront of your mind when you were making the film or is it just something that naturally falls out of kind of making a film about that time in your life basically it was dundee had to be seen in a good light because dundee's awesome it's like it, it always gets it, it as my dad used to say it never gets a kick of the bar dundee never gets a kick of the bar it always gets always gets kind of left behind. Like when it was the oil thing, Aberdeen. It all went to Aberdeen. Like, forget about Dundee. Although we had the best port and everything, right? Forget about that. We'll just put it up to Aberdeen because obviously things were done at the time. <laughs> anyway, that's a long story. Let's not go into that. But, and it's, um, I just think it's a great city and it, it looks great. It's, you know, it's, the people are great. They're really resilient. They've got great sense of humour. Got a brilliant sense of humor. Like, see Kyle Faulkner, like he is he's Dundee, right? And he's a great mate of mine, and I managed him for a couple of years. And that's that's a Dundee sense of humor. Gary Roberts, people like that are funny, like you know, they're, they're great people. And I just wanted people to see what Dundee people are like, you know, that that they've got a lot of spirit, you know. And I wanted them to see that Dundee's not a dump, it's it's nice, it's got the beaches, it's got great houses, it's got great bars and clubs and restaurants and that now and even back in the day it was it was good fun like you know? yeah i feel like um i feel like i feel like dundee has not managed to 
recover its reputation. It's ve- the reputation is very out of step with the reality of the city, I think. Yeah, what sort of reputation did you think they had? I, well, one thing that well, no, I've more noticed over the year, like, and I, I, being from Dundee, I tend to bristle at them myself. Yeah. But it's just like if there's a if the the punchline to a joke is a Scottish city, uh-huh. the city that's picked is always Dundee, is my experience, or at least or at least the ones that aren't kind of like you know tundra, a bit of a you know like the Gla- you know Glasgow is occasionally the subject to them, but it's always with a sort of a reverence for like the wit or the humour or something. Whereas Dundee just seems to get the the piss ripped out of it, and that's the end of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it, it does, and, and that's what I felt really strongly about. It's like you know, I've I've, tra- I've been lucky. I've travelled like all over the world. Like, it's so lucky, and every time I come back from wherever it is, Latin America or, or whatever, and land at Heathrow and get the train up to uh, Scotland, and I come across on that bridge, I, I love it. I get a buzz. I'm coming across on that bridge in a, a great city, like you know, great well, city. Come across, really, come across the the bridge. I think it looks fantastic. You know, uh, like the city yeah. rising up the hill. It, it looks really, it's, it's, it looks really great, to be honest. I suppose yeah. more so since that council building was demolished, but it looks yeah, great. You know, yeah, that, yeah, <laughs> yeah. F- f- faulty towers. Are- <laughs> but um which was quite a good name for it but um yeah i just wanted to make it look good and because uh, it is good i mean and it's where you come from and where you come from kind of shapes where you're going to go like you know and and yeah okay it's a city of hard knocks and that and it gets called mini chicago i quite like being called mini chicago i remember going through to glasgow and sort of getting into a fight once and well, I was I was actually battered, but um, somebody says, "Hey, where are you from, Dundee?" Oh, mini Chicago, you know. Boom. <laughs> I thought mini Chicago. That's quite nice. I like that. Yeah. Um, now, am I right? In, am I right in saying you've got you've got another film project set in Dundee in the works? It's called The Mill. Yeah, forgot about that. Which is about the corruption in uh, the council in night from nineteen sixty-seven through the seventies. Because my my dad used to own farms, and he was. Uh, he was compulsory purchased out of both of them by the council for pittance. And the council um, awarded themselves the contracts. You should watch a documentary from World of Action on it. It's like ridiculous. I mean, he, he gets turfed out. They come in, buy it, and build all these houses and award themselves the contracts for the joinery, the electricity, the plumbing, and this and that. Anyway, it kind of broke my dad, like, you know. So so we went from being farmer and big house and to living in a multi, which was overnight, you know, was a pretty um, sensational experience, put it mildly. So that's called The Mill, and that is pretty dark, very dark, because it's seen through my eyes, like, you know, when I was like 13. Not packed with jokes, that one. Not packed with <laughs> funnies, that one. No, slightly, <laughs> slightly dark. Not, as not say, to but... laugh a minute, that one, no, but, you know. Yeah. I think what's, inter- what's interesting about it, though, is. I think the the way you describe it there, and then when you compare it to schemers, there there is clearly uh, a goal put across, kind of a positive image of the people of Dundee, um, and kind of a the resilience, I suppose, is maybe one way you would put it. Um, so and yeah, as something yeah. That I've not I've I've not seen my home city on screen that much, so I'm 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 very much looking forward to that, even if it is a bit darker. I mean, I basically just go in a spiral kind of down OCD, go a bit mad, it's this nightmare, like, you know. But um, anyway, so that, that's that. But it's, it's been well put together and it's, it's all kind of ready to go. We would be filming it now, actually, if it wasn't for that COVID thing. But but that's one that will probably be the next one. But we've got so many. I've got five films lined up, but most of them are about music. In fact, they're all about music, apart from that. Yeah, so... 
so the film's coming to cinemas on the 25th of September, uh, theatrical release. You must be pretty thrilled about that, given all the difficulties it's taken to get to this point. Yeah, definitely. Awesome. 180 screens, uh, like I said. So, you know, it's, it's great considering the difficulties, as you say. And, um, well, as, as it stands at the minute, unless the government change any more rules, and <laughs> let's see what happens. Yeah, hopefully, as many people as possible will see it. Yeah, that yeah, number exactly, works yeah. out to be. <laughs> yeah, well, it's it's looking good. I've, I've you know, I'm getting a good uh, good reports from the from the territories. You know. Good. Well, I would um, I'd heartily recommend it myself. Uh, I've got a review up online, so people can check that out if they need any further convincing. But hopefully, they don't. Uh, so schemers is out on the 25th of September. Uh, Dave, thank you for talking to me today. Ah, uh, top man, really, really good chat. Thanks for your support, awesome. And are you a Dundee United fan as well, yeah? I am. I am. Ah, I, come on. It's just as well. just as well that that would have been an awkward uh, note to finish on. No, that would have been a bad one. Uh, and uh, I can't go without saying arabest. Okay, arabest. All right. Very good. Very good. All right. Cheers. Thank you. So now we've come to the part of the show where we recommend our short films that are currently online or will be soon online. And um, I have um, attempted to not have us uh, uh, time these anymore. So I hope to keep that. But we will still try to keep them short uh, for for our own purposes. Um, So I will leave it to Jim to start. uh, Give us your short recommendations. Um, well, you're not going to need to time me this week because I don't have a specific. Oh, okay. Um, Moving with right the, on. With the with the absurd with the absurd festival schedule of kind of like digital things I've been looking at, I haven't really had a chance to to you know choose a choose a carefully picked recommendation. Um, what I do know though is that the London Film Festival uh, shorts will be free to view, or at least a, a few of them will, and that will be taking place um, early in October. So I would suggest that people check that out and have another opportunity to embrace free short film and free online digital festivals, um, particularly for a festival where historically, you know, it's not really been available for that sort of thing, certainly not for the public. So I would say check that out when it rolls around. And then really any of the festivals that we've spoken about, I mean, any of the short programs which are free to view, I think we're entering into festival season, there's going to be a lot of short films available. So I'm not going to give a specific recommendation. I would say go out and make recommendations to us for future editions of the segment, basically. There's going to be a lot out there. Um, yeah, I, w- I also give a plug to the Taiwan Film Festival Edinburgh that we were talking about earlier. Uh, there's a short um, film program they have that's also online, um, and there's three shorts on there, about 30 minutes apiece. They're all good. Um, I particularly liked the busy... Young Psychic, um, which was about a high school girl who um, is also uh, has a career as a psychic. So she's helping people and she's trying to kind of, um, you know, deal with the fact that she wants to have she has a crush on a boy and she has baseball practice and she and but she also has these duties. Um, so um, it was it was quite lovely and, and 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 I enjoyed it. But all three of them are great. So uh, give that a look and mark. Sure. So the short I want to mention is, I mean, brand new in that it played the Venice Film Festival last week, I think, and it's gone on to movie basically immediately. It's the new film by Matty Diop. Um, it's called In My Room, and it's part of the kind of expanding genre, um, subgenre of documentaries known as the What I Did During My Quarantine. Um, 
uh, I think there's one on Netflix called Homemade, which is like a collection of these shorts together. This can easily be part of that, but um, the funny point to me about it is that it's funded, at least partially funded by Prada, part of a series of films in which a Prada dress will take some kind of significance in it, right? So product placement, you go, oh, product placement, not good, right? Um, but I don't think they were expecting Matty Diop to, on one hand, document her experience in lockdown by looking at her window, spying on her neighbours, dressing up in the dress, just having a like ball in her apartment, and also intercutting it with audio recordings of her grandmother's last years. And it turns into like a kind of um, not an exact version of No Home Movie, Chantal Ackerman's last film, but it earns comparisons with them and the amount of stuff that you kind of, the difficult stuff you have to sit through in it. I just can't imagine like the face of the person who uh, commissioned this series of films in which Prada dresses feature going, wait, what have we got here? Like, <laughs> I'm really interested in that image. And I uh, was just looking at that series too, and there are films by um, Lucretia Martel and Ava DuVernay and Lynn Ramsey, Elise Borowacker. I'm just thinking like, God, they must they must have had fun putting that series <laughs> together. My goodness. Um, so yeah, I, I'm not sure that this is Mighty Diop's best film. Um, I'm I'm wondering about the um, the use of the grandmother's voice. Sometimes it feels like, uh, encroaching sometimes encroachingly personal in a way that I felt uncomfortable by uncomfortable by not uselessly not unproductively but I, I still did feel that um, and I feel like Snow Cannon her amazing short film is just far and away better than this but still a very interesting thing to sit through when you realize what its provenance is oh, sounds very great and you can watch it right now you said online yeah it's on movie Okay, on Mubi. Um, so check check out all of those. We'll present, we'll put links in in the um, description. So that wraps uh, our September edition. We'll be back in October. We'll probably be talking a lot about the films that um, everyone's been seeing through the festivals. We urge you all to go and take advantage of the online festivals that we've discussed. And um, urge you to take, um, well, to come to networking if you'd like to tonight. And also, or, on you know, on a monthly basis and our doc screening in the light as well as to check out our Cinescapes project which for the next two weeks we will be heavily um, trying to promote in order to keep um, you know fundraising for this uh, community-based project so thank you guys so much for being part of this um, this episode Um, our what are you looking forward to doing this month so in my case I mean just like I said Millions of festivals, all the festivals. They did, as I say, need to get all these festivals in a room and get them to separate themselves out a bit. Um, so yeah, I mean, finishing off Toronto, London will be happening. Um, yeah, festivals. So many festivals. <laughs> Much the same over here. Um, yeah. But I'm I'm starting a master's in film studies next week. So oh, cool. um, there's so there's that to contend with. I'm going to find time to do some London coverage as well next month. So yeah, it's going to be, uh, as Jim said, busy. Well, you beget your, I think I saw something like Guillermo del Toro was able to watch three films a day during lockdown. Do you think you'll be able to get to your, you were watching like three films a day for a while. Yeah. Mark seemed like he was doing more than that for a while. <laughs> um, that's attainable if you've got time. 
<laughs> well, it, I, I have watched three films in a day just to get ready for this podcast once, but I won't, I won't <laughs> tell you what month that was. Um, anyway, thank you guys so much. And uh, please, uh, you know, reply back. Let us know how what you think, um, your thoughts on um, all the films that we've talked about. Uh, we're at Cinetopia Hub on Instagram or at Cinetopia on Twitter. And uh, yeah, we're CinetopiaShow at gmail.com um, with email style. So thanks again. See you next time. Bye-bye. Stop.